following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how you can join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org. So glad that you have joined us this morning. Whether you're here joining us in the room or those of you who are joining us online, we're so glad that you are here. A special word to those of you who are joining us online. We are really glad that you're here, but we would love to have you here in the room with us. Uh, those of us who gather here week in, week out, we're here, but we're actually continuing to see more people join us each week online than here in the room. And I know we've got people that are all around the country and even around the world that join us. I, I know there's folks in Italy, there's folks from China, there's folks in Bangladesh that regularly join us for worship um, online, but some of y'all are in Valley Ranch, right? <laughs> and we'd love to have you here with us. So I'm so glad you're here wherever you're joining us from. I hope you have your Bible. Let's go to Matthew chapter 11. We're going to start out Matthew chapter 11. We're going to flip over to 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning. You know, each of us is shaped by two kinds of stories, the stories we live and the stories we live into. There's a tree-lined path that winds through the woods behind Maudlin College in Oxford, England. And, and uh, I had the opportunity to walk that path about nine years ago with my family. It's a beautiful space where as you walk along, the, the river runs along one side of the path, the, the meadow where deer are grazing out in the middle on the other side. And as I walked that path with my kids, I, I thought back to a walk that took place there on that same path in 1931. Uh, It was a a walk, a conversation of of two of Christianity's greatest, most beloved storytellers, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis. They were joined by their friend Hugo Dyson, and and as they walked along that afternoon and what led into long conversations in Lewis's rooms uh, into the wee hours of the morning, that, that as they walked and talked, they talked about their shared love of stories, And the thing is, is that as they talked about these stories, Dyson and Tolkien, who were both committed Christians, were talking with Lewis, who was not a Christian at the time, about the idea that the stories that they love, the the great stories of literature, ultimately are pointers to, shadows of, the story that's true. That Dyson and and Tolkien were trying to persuade Lewis that that his love for these stories ultimately points to the story that came true in the incarnation of Jesus. And it was through this conversation about their shared love of stories that Lewis's mind began to open to the truth and beauty of the gospel. And within about a week's time, Lewis wrote a letter to his childhood friend, Arthur Greaves, and said, I've gone from believing in God to definitely believing in Christ in Christianity. And my conversation with Tolkien and Dyson had a great deal to do with that. Lewis is, is converted through this conversation about stories. Because human beings are relentless storytellers. And all of our lives are shaped by two kinds of stories. The stories we live and the stories we live into. The stories we live are our unique personal autobiographies, that experience of, of, uh, that set of experiences and relationships that, that shape us, that mold us, that make us who we are. It's the stories we live. But we are also shaped by the stories that we live into. 
those stories that precede us and, and continue on beyond us, but that, that we live into to give our lives some sense of coherence and direction and meaning. The most religious and the most secular of people all live into some kind of larger story. Some of the popular stories that are on offer in our cultural moment are stories like the American dream. That the, the sense of identity and the, the sense of the good life is found in what we uh, acquire, what we accumulate. And if you just work hard enough, that we can all achieve that sense of, of, of well-being that is the American dream. Another popular story in these days is uh, what's called expressive individualism. That is the story that says, nobody can tell me what to do that I can go my own way, that I can do my own thing, that I can be my own person, that I can proclaim my own truth. This sense of individualism that says, nobody else can impose their story on me. It's the story of expressive individualism. Or maybe the story's being told by your political party of choice, regardless of what side of the aisle it lands on. That oftentimes those political parties would, would have us want to, to, to believe that our sense of connection, our sense of commonality, our, our sense of identity and, and allegiance is ultimately found with those with whom we share a party, even if they're not those with whom we share faith. A sense of identity and allegiance to those who, who may share the party but not the faith rather than those who share the faith but not the party. These are some of the stories on offer within this cultural moment, and yet we who are followers of Jesus are to be those who live into the story of God told on the pages of the Bible. That all of us are shaped by two kinds of stories, the stories we live and the stories we live into. So this morning, we're continuing with our sermon series called More of You. It's a series on spiritual formation. And at the heart of that title is the idea that we say to Jesus, Jesus, I want more of you in my life. I want more of your heart. I want more of your character formed in me. I want more of you. But also, the, the, the double meaning of the phrase is to say, he only get, we only get more, you only get more of him as he gets more of you. As we open up more and more of our lives to him, to let him into those places in our lives that he wants to, to transform, to renovate, to change in us. Last week, we offered a definition of spiritual formation that we said we're gonna come back to throughout the remainder of this series. A simple little definition that just says this spiritual formation is a process of deep inner change, whereby you become more like Jesus and therefore more like your true self. It is this deep interchange. The, the biblical language is metamorphosis, real, deep, and lasting change. And that change is to change us more and more into the image, the likeness, the character of Jesus. That if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, then God's agenda for you and for me is to make us more and more like the one who has saved us. This process of deep interchange, making us more like Jesus, thereby makes us more like our true selves, because as we become more like Christ, we actually become more like the person that God has made us to be. We talked last week about that wonderful passage in Romans chapter 12 that really gets at the heart of what this process of change is all about, where Paul says, I urge you therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your reasonable service of worship. 
And do not be conformed any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And that Paul, in, in, in offering us these words of admonition, really gives us something of, of a model of how this process of spiritual formation takes place. And we said that is the spirit changes us as we embrace Jesus' vision of reality, engage in a formative embodied a set of formative embodied practices in the context of authentic community. First, it is the recognition it is the spirit who changes, that this transformation begins with the recognition, I can't change myself, allowing the spirit to do what only he can do in our lives. It is the spirit who changes us as we embrace Jesus' vision of reality, as we cease to believe and live the lies of this world, and are transformed by the renewing of our minds. But that we said knowledge alone is not enough, that that we need to engage in an embodied set of spiritual practices, formative practices, whereby we present our bodies to God and say, God, here I am, have your way in my life. And all this takes place in the context of authentic community, that you won't find victory in your areas of struggle apart from a community of fellow strugglers. And so today we're talking about the Bible. Today we're talking about the place of the scriptures in this process of spiritual formation. What is the the place of the Bible in the renewing of our minds? And as we engage in the embodied formative practice of reading the scriptures, and, and yet when we come to talk about the Bible, I think we have to be honest. I think we actually have to begin with the confession. Right? We need to do a little bit of a, a DTR, to define the relationship with regard to our relationship to the Bible. And here's what I think we have to say. It's complicated, right? You ever had one of those relationships where what's the relationship status? It's complicated. I think that, that for many of us, when it comes to our relationship with the Bible, what we have to say is it's complicated. And I think it's complicated for a variety of reasons. On the one hand, I think it's complicated because this is a book that for many of us, we, we say, I believe it. I believe in it. I believe that it is the word of God. We just don't read it, right? If we're really honest. That some of us affirm how important it is, but we haven't actually made it a priority in our lives. A recent LifeWay study found that uh, only 32% of Americans who attend a Protestant church regularly say that, 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 say that they read their Bible personally every day. 32%. And can I just tell you, I think 32% is a little high, Right? I, think, I think there were some people who were taking this survey and it was like, okay, I could either lie or admit I don't read my Bible every day, right? And they chose to lie. I think 32%'s a little high. And, and, and I know that there are some of you that you are in your, in your Bible every single day and I think that's great, but I think you're the, 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 the small minority. And I don't say this to shake my finger at anybody because if I'm being honest, I can easily go through stretches in my life where I'm studying the Bible just to prepare to share it with you, but I'm not actually engaging in the scriptures for my own spiritual formation. So I think we have to be honest about the fact that it, it, it's complicated. For some, it's complicated also because, well, if you're really being honest, you're, you're not sure you actually trust the Bible, that you wrestle with the Bible. You wrestle with what's in the Bible. 
You, you wrestle with the question of whether or not the Bible is good and good for us. There have been so many terrible things that have been done by those who claim to believe the Bible. There have been so many terrible things that have been justified using the Bible. There are even terrible things done by people who are supposed to be the people of God in the Bible. And so you wrestle. It's complicated. And so how do we think about the place of the Bible in our spiritual formation? And here's where I wanna begin this morning. I wanna begin with Jesus. Seems like a reasonable place to begin, right? I wanna begin with Jesus because we are first and foremost a Jesus church. I know the, the sign outside says Irving Bible Church, but you need to know that we are, we are first and foremost a Jesus church. We are a Bible church precisely because we are a Jesus church. And as followers of Jesus, we wanna have the kind of relationship to the Bible that Jesus had with the Bible. And here's what you need to know. Jesus knew the Bible. He, he, he knew it deeply. He, it was on his lips all the time. It was in his heart all the time. Jesus knew the Bible. Jesus loved the Bible. Jesus trusted the Bible. And we wanna have the kind of relationship to the Bible that Jesus had with the Bible. I, wanna, I want you to look with me at this verse in Matthew chapter 11, this uh, well-known uh, words from the mouth of Jesus. And there's a whole lot more here than we have time to really dive into this morning. But, but I just want you to hear what he says. Verse 28, Matthew eleven twenty-eight. He says, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Now, what we have in these words is Jesus' call to discipleship. Sissy talked just a few weeks back about some specific calls of specific people to come and be his disciples. Come to me. Come follow me. And here is a more general call to discipleship. Come to me. Jesus was a rabbi. And what is a rabbi? A Bible teacher. Jesus was more than merely a rabbi, but, but, but he was a rabbi. He was a Bible teacher. And here he invites people to come and be his disciples. And he says, take my yoke upon you. The image of a yoke is what you do with oxen, the way in which you um, connect oxen together to pull a load by laying a yoke across their shoulders. And so the metaphor here is to come and to, to take on this yoke of Jesus. In the first century world, a rabbi had a yoke that was the metaphorical way of talking about his unique teaching and way of life based on the Bible. Right? So Jesus' yoke is his unique way of reading the Bible and living the Bible. So when he invites people to come and to follow him, to take his yoke upon them, to learn from him, he's inviting them into this relationship with the Bible that he had with the Bible. There's all sorts of places that we could look for the way that Jesus talked about related to the Bible, but one of those places in the Sermon on the Mount where, where Jesus says to his disciples, don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? Which is first century rabbi way of speaking about the Bible. See, so don't think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
And sometimes I think in our imagination, when we hear those words of Jesus, that he came to fulfill the law, we sort of think that he's talking about that, that he came to, to, to follow it, to obey the law. Like, like we might fulfill the law when we go to renew our driver's license, right? That glorious adventure that we have when we go to the DMV to renew our driver's license. I'm, I'm here, I'm enduring this agony in order to fulfill the requirements of the law. And Jesus certainly did fulfill the requirements of the law, but, but when Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, he's not talking primarily about a set of rules to live by. He's talking primarily about a story to live into. And what does it mean to fulfill a story? When Jesus talks about, I've come to fulfill the law and the prophets, he's talking about the idea that he's come to bring this story to its climax and conclusion. That Jesus says, I have come to fulfill this story, to bring this story to its climax and conclusion. So for us to have the same relationship to the Bible that Jesus has to the Bible is to see it as this diverse collection of writings telling a single story that finds its climax and completion in Jesus. That's the Bible. That's the way that Jesus related to the Bible, to see it as a diverse collection of writings telling a unified story that finds its climax and completion in him. It's a diverse collection of writings. It's, a, it's really more like a library than a book. It's bound together for us. This is a nice leather volume. It's bound together, and yet it's actually a collection of books. It's, it's like a library with many different genres, many different authors, 66 books written by more than 40 different authors over several centuries. It's a diverse collection, and yet it tells a single story. It's held together by more than merely that nice leather binding. I grew up learning the stories of the Bible, the individual little kind of moral tales, but not really learning the story of the Bible. And yet the Bible tells a single unified story, and Jesus says that story finds its climax and completion in me. For us to relate to the Bible as Jesus related to the Bible is to see it as this diverse collection of writings telling a unified story that finds its climax and completion in him. I love the way that Andrew Wilson, who's a British pastor theologian, captures this in his book, Unbreakable. He says this, ultimately, you see, our trust in the Bible stems from our trust in Jesus Christ, the man who is God, the king of the world, the crucified and risen and exalted rescuer. I don't trust Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him and I've decided to follow him. So if he talks and acts as if the Bible is trustworthy, authoritative, good, helpful, and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered and some of my answers remain unpopular. Isn't that good? We trust the Bible because we trust in Jesus. And Jesus trusted the Bible. We read the Bible as Jesus read the Bible, as a diverse collection of writings telling a unified story that finds its climax and completion in him. Now, I wanna shift gears with you just a little bit and flip over from Matthew 11 to 2 Timothy chapter three. 2 Timothy is written by the apostle Paul. Paul was one who took the way of Jesus, the yoke of Rabbi Jesus, and began to spread it around the ancient Mediterranean world. And, and Paul here in in 2 Timothy 3, is writing to his young protege. 
And what he has for us here is what is the most famous verse about the Bible in the Bible. And it reflects not only the teaching of the Apostle Paul, but I believe it reflects back to the heart of the way in which Jesus saw the Bible. And I wanna just talk with you a little bit about the way in which God uses his word in our spiritual formation. Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. First of all, Paul says all scripture is God-breathed. Uh, I remember when I was a first-year seminary student, I, I learned this phrase, the first phrase that I learned in Greek, pasta, grafe, theopneustos. All scripture is God-breathed. And, and I was a youth pastor at the time, so I was trying to download everything I was learning in seminary to 13-year-olds. Um, and you know that sort of irritating thing that I do sometimes where I make you repeat stuff with me, right, in hopes that maybe you'll remember it? I've been doing that a long time, right? So I would do that with my kids way back in the day. And, and now those kids have grown up, they're like in their late 30s, maybe early 40s. But I think that if you went to, to them today and you asked them, what did you learn from Pastor Barry back all those years ago? I think what they would say to you is, pasa, grafe, theopneustas. Because I just said it to them over and over and over again. All scripture is God-breathed. Now, that doesn't mean that, that human beings were passive in the process of composing the scriptures. It doesn't mean that the authors themselves weren't involved, as, as though they sort of went into a trance, or they heard a voice and dictating what they were to write, or, or that, that, that these words were delivered to them on, on some kind of a tablet. That's actually closer to the teaching of the Muslims about the Quran or the Mormons about the Book of Mormon than it is the historic teaching of the church about the Bible. The church is not taught that the human authors were passive in the process of God's inspiration. That in fact, what you have is a very human book that reflects the unique perspectives of its human authors. It reflects their cultural perspectives. It, it reflects their personal experience. It even reflects their personalities. You can sort of think about maybe what the Enneagram numbers were of the different authors of the Bible, right? It reflects their unique cultural perspective, their personality, their, their experiences. It's a profoundly human book. And, and, God was at work in such a way in its composition so as to ensure that the Bible we have is the Bible we need. Right? That the doctrine of inspiration teaches that, 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 that God worked in the lives, in the hearts, through the pens of these human authors. That even though they were fully engaged in the process, he worked so as to ensure that the Bible we have is the Bible we need. As though it came directly from his mouth. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired by God. Now, when we say the Bible we have is the Bible we need, we, we once again have to be honest the Bible we have is not always the Bible we want because it, it doesn't always behave the way that we would like for it to, right? There's some weird stuff in there. There's some stuff that we don't like in there. And there is a temptation for all of us to do what Thomas Jefferson literally did with his New Testament, which was to take the scissors and to cut out the part that he didn't like. And we can be tempted to do that because the Bible we have is not always the Bible we want, but the Bible we have is the Bible we need. 
All scripture is God-breathed and is, Paul says, useful. Some of your translations may say profitable. It's good and it's good for us. That it's useful and it's useful for what purpose? Well, Paul tells us what it's useful for, these four things that he goes on to elaborate. Four ways in which it's useful for us. But, but I want you to notice, one of the things that I always do when I'm teaching the Bible with you is to try to say, where's the tension? Right, when we see what the, what the scripture says, where's the tension between what it says and the way that we often think or the way that we often live? And that's a good exercise for you as you're studying the scriptures, where's the tension? And so notice in these four areas that Paul lays out for us, what's the tension? Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful first for teaching, for teaching us. Well, what's the tension there? Well, the tension there is actually being willing to admit that sometimes we're ignorant, right? Sometimes, sometimes we just don't know. And what is it in particular that, that, we, that we don't know? I believe that at, at the heart of it, the Bible is given to teach us the character of God and therefore the character God wants to produce in us. Left to our own devices, we are prone to ignorance. Left to our own devices, we're prone to make up all kinds of gods that are not the God of the Bible. You see, friends, it's not enough to actually have a high view of the Bible. That's important. It's important that we have a high view of the Bible, but it's not enough to have a high view of the Bible. The Pharisees had an incredibly high view of the Bible, but they had completely lost the plot. Jesus said to the Pharisees in John chapter five, verse 39, he says, you, the Pharisees, you, you study the scriptures diligently. They had a very high view of the Bible. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me and have life. The yoke of the Pharisees was a heavy burden because it was all about rule keeping. It was all about having right doctrine. But they had missed the very character of God that was on display in the person of Jesus and the offer of eternal life to be found in him. It's not enough to have a high view of the Bible. You can, you can read the Bible every day and still be a jerk, right? You can read the Bible every day and really miss Jesus along the way. I have to be honest that I get a little suspicious when I hear people use the term biblical as an adjective. I mean, we all wanna be biblical and yet sometimes biblical is used to justify all sorts of things that don't seem very Christ-like. And so I wonder if rather... The question should not be, is it biblical, but is it Christ-like? Because ultimately, the way that we read the Bible is supposed to be Christ-like and leads us to Christ-likeness. That this is the lens through which we read and interpret the Bible. The Bible is useful for teaching us because left to our own devices, we're prone to make up all kinds of images of God on our own. We're prone to ignorance. Second, the Bible is useful for rebuking. Rebuking, we all like that one, don't we? Right? The tension is pretty apparent. We really don't like to be rebuked, and yet we need the Bible. Sometimes we need the Bible to take us by the shoulders and shake us and say, No, stop it. Don't do that. 
We need the Bible to rebuke us. Now here, I think we have to be very careful and pay attention to who is doing the, the, the rebuking to whom. Because the temptation is great for us to take the Bible and to use it to rebuke the world. Friends, I think we ought to expect that the world is gonna behave like the world. The world is not under the authority of the Bible. The, the, the Bible is true for them, but it's not authoritative to, for them. They have not submitted themselves to the authority of the Bible. We are those who claim to have submitted ourselves to the authority of the Bible. The Bible is for rebuking us. Put another way, the Bible is not a club for us to use against the world. It's a scalpel for God to use against our sin. Right? It's not a club for us to, to beat people in the world over the head with the Bible. It's a scalpel that God uses to cut away the cancer of sin in the lives of his people that we sometimes need the Bible's rebuke in our lives. The Bible's useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting. Once again, none of us likes to feel corrected, right? I, I'm out of time, but I gotta tell this story anyway. Um, a few years ago, I was uh, driving out to New Mexico with my family. All six of us piled in the van. My wife, myself, our three kids, and my mom. And we were on our way out there, and we decide it's time for lunch. We need to drive through a drive through Now, if I have any parents in the room that have multiple kids, you know the the chaos and misery that ensues when you're trying to get everybody's order and get it just right through that speaker and you know that even when you pull around, there's gonna be something messed up anyway. There's six of us in the car and everybody's telling their order at the same time and I'm just about to lose my mind. I mean, it's, it's, it's chaos, it's crazy. And so finally, I think I've got it all figured out and, and so I said, you know, can I get a, a number one with ketchup only and then just go through the whole litany of all the, all the orders from the six people in the car? I'm, I'm just about to completely lose it, but I, I, I think I got it. We get through the order, and I begin to pull around. And as I begin to pull around toward the window, my, my saintly, beloved mother says to me, it's not can I get, it's may I have, right? <laughs> She's correcting my grammar in this, are you kidding me, in this moment? Are you kidding me? She gave me permission to share the story, so don't worry. None of us likes to be corrected, do we? And yet sometimes we need it. Because left to ourselves, we are prone to error. We are prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And we need the Bible to correct us. We learned last week that we are always being formed. We're either being conformed to the patterns of this world or we're being transformed by the renewing of our minds. We need the Bible to undo the patterns that the world is pressing us into. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and finally training in righteousness. And we've talked about before this word righteousness. It's a churchy word. It's a word that we don't ever really use in our vernacular except in church. And, and sometimes I think even when we use it in church, we have a pretty thin conception of what it means. We can tend to think about and talk about righteousness as though it's merely sort of morally upright living. As though what Jesus is saying is seek first the reign of God and his morally upright living. And I just think that's way too thin a conception of righteousness. It certainly involves morally upright living, but there's more to it than that. The language of righteousness 
is the same language that in other contexts is, is translated justice. There's, there's not two separate words in the Greek. Same word, righteousness, justice. The whole concept is set rightness. The, the, the language that's similarly used to refer to our set rightness with God, our justification with God, also then is translated into setting things right in the world around us. And I believe that God has given us the Bible to train us and equip us to be people who are engaged in the process of seeing things set right in the world around us. In his book, Dream With Me, the beloved preacher and civil rights activist John Perkins captures it this way. He says, I'm sure that my understanding of justice is not yet complete, but the best I've been able to discern so far through prayer, through study of scripture, and through much thought is this. I love this. He says, justice is any act of reconciliation that restores any part of God's creation back to its original intent, purpose, or image. Perkins says, when you think about justice that way, it doesn't surprise me at all that God loves it. And I love it too. I can't wait to see what it looks like when God's redemptive work in the world is complete, when his kingdom has come and we, have finally, and we finally have a chance to live in the relationships with him and with one another that he intended for us from the beginning. That's a great biblical definition of justice. Any act of reconciliation that restores any part of God's creation back to its original intent, purpose, or image. The Bible is given to train us and equip us, not only to be set right with God and to live morally upright lives, but to engage in seeing things set right in the world around us as we await that great day when finally his kingdom comes in its fullness. Now, as we conclude this morning, I just wanna tell you, I really struggled with this sermon. I struggled with this sermon maybe more than any other I have in the last number of months, and, and the reason why is this. I, I just felt like there's so much to say about the Bible, so much I could say, so much I wanted to say, so much that I, in some sense I needed to say, and yet recognizing that I could only say so much within a particular sermon, and I'm watching the numbers in red already counting down on me. And so at the end of the day, I sat back and said, what, what do I really wanna say? And here's what I wanna say. First of all, I love this church. And because I love this church, I want this church, I want you to know and love and follow Jesus. And because I want you to know and love and follow Jesus, I want you to know and love and follow the Bible. It's my great joy to be able to stand up here week in and week out and open these pages and share them with you. But here's the application for all of us. Let's be that kind of church, the kind of church that, that knows and loves and follows Jesus by immersing ourselves more and more into this story to know and love and follow the Bible. And if, if you're here, you're visiting this morning, we want you to know that's the kind of church that we're going to be, and we would love for you to come and be a part of it with us. Because we wanna have the kind of relationship with the Bible that Jesus had with the Bible. And Jesus saw the Bible as a diverse collection of writings, telling a single story that found its climax and completion in him. That all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, 
and training us in righteousness, that we may be formed in the way of Jesus for the sake of the world. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. For more information on how to join us on a Sunday or take your next step, visit irvingbible.org.